Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither, and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Magic Mike? I'm revved up to be here. Oh, there you go. Really fun idea that we kind of had out of nowhere, which was to list our favorite movie from every year we've been alive. And this initially started on Twitter, on our Twitter account, something we have been running essentially every single day for the past 35 days. And why don't you take it over from here? Because this has been your baby, your Twitter baby. You've been running it for a while and it spawned a lot of really cool engagement from folks. And what we're going to do on this podcast is basically go through our favorite movie of each year. But why don't you introduce, you know, what it was like to run that on Twitter? You know, our listenership from our podcast has been going so well and trying to get engagement on Twitter it was trying to merge the two. It's like, how do we get more Twitter engagements? Because our Twitter page, if you listen to us, you should be following us on Twitter because we do some really cool stuff. And we were like, I, I think this is not, it doesn't seem like they're, um, they're joint. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of like a way to, to join together what you hear when you listen to us and then what you could possibly see and engage with us live when we do it. Coming up with a favorite, it started out coming out as, a, as a, what was our favorite movie for each year we've been alive. And looking at it now, we could have probably started, and maybe we will, maybe we'll go in reverse. Um, but we started in 1985 and just kind of started going from there with different picks of the movies that we that we selected and runners up and then hearing what other people had to say what they thought was their favorite movie and the engagement has been so much fun it's just really cool like it, I, we talked about this where it's like could you imagine like what it would have been like if we were kids and twitter existed oh man like just a couple of film geeks and and just having an avenue to go to to just talk about a movie that you had just seen that you were like, where are my other people out here that know about yes. this movie? That would have been so cool. And now that's kind of what we're trying to do with Twitter. Yeah. I mean, oh, even when I got on Twitter, which was like, I don't know, 2010, 2011, my, I was already such a huge fan of movies. I have been since, since birth. And that made my film knowledge so much larger because not only are you meeting people who like the same stuff you like, but when you do that, you trust the shit that they start recommending you because yeah, we are pre-internet kids and mm -hmm. I have been obsessed with movies for forever. So this meant going to great lengths to buy them. Like I've watched some ridiculous best picture winners for like $60 because I had to buy a $60 VHS because that's the only way I could watch it at the time. And it wasn't even that good. Chariots of Fire, yay. Yeah. Now you can just rent it so easily, you know. And so it's it's kind of fun to to think about that, about what Twitter can provide for film fans. And we kind of talked about this in picking our favorite. Okay, because it's favorite versus best, right? That's yes. something that's we I think I even mentioned this on our very first podcast episode when talking about Spike Lee, that a few films from him that I'm going to mention today of a director, you can have your favorite movie that they've made the one that you can rewatch all the time and one that may be objectively the best. So that's fun to contend with here. And we both kind of went through that on our list. So when you're looking at a year, it's like, yeah, sometimes I definitely went with like the hardcore deep cut 
foreign film geek choice when there were much more popular mainstream movies that came out that year that I've probably even seen more times. But it's like, I just had to go with my heart here. Others, we just kind of had to go with our joy. It'd be like, Mm -hmm. this is a movie that brings me a lot of joy. I've watched it a ton of times or it connects with me in a personal way. So these, as always, these lists are not, you know, we're not AFI. We're not sitting here telling you like, these are definitively the best movies of that year. These are just what speak to us. And we're going to give you a few reasons why. And that's kind of it. It's going to be really simple. That's perfect because that's the point. Like you're, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Like we're not saying that this is the best movie. We can never talk like that. Like we could never just Mm-mm. say this is the definitively best movie of the year. But when you talk about what your favorite movies are, that opens up the conversation that anyone could look at. And maybe even with themselves, they can kind of be like, you know what? Maybe I'm a little – I. I I really do like this movie that no one else likes that much, but for whatever reason, it connects with me. And that's the conversation we want to open up. So we, and even starting out with our first year, we have a quite a, uh, quite a, a, a contrast. And and that's another thing. Maybe this is worth touching on really quick. We did somewhat consciously, we reserved for when we picked the same movies in each year for very, you know, special reasons, because I might venture to say that sometimes we may have more movies in common, but, you know, for the sake, honestly, for the sake of just discussion, we figured let's try to branch it out, list as many as we can. But really this podcast, we got a new listener recently and she was asking me, you know, what's kind of the focus of your podcast? And I said, we're really concerned about the why. We're concerned about describing why we like these movies and why we connect with them. We're not really concerned with like the what, like of just listing stuff on and just listing it blankly. It's like, why do we like, why is this our favorite movie of 1989? Whatever it's going to be. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. And we hope you dig it. A lot of these, we didn't go through and say where you can find all these to watch, but a lot of these are really popular and they're just out there for free. Like it's, it's crazy that you can watch all this stuff for free. So take advantage of that. Um, all right. You want me to start? Kick it off, Oss. 1985, birth year. Not the best year for movies, I might say, which makes me kind of tempted to want to go back. But that's not to take anything away from Ran, directed by Akira Kurosawa. It is a massive movie with a huge scope. It's based on King Lear. This is this movie taught me so much because, you know, when you're a young film fan, I don't I shouldn't speak generally. When I was a young film fan, it's like do I, when do I venture into the three hour foreign films? Cause that's going to become a thing. Like, when do I make that bridge? And I don't know, do I do one at a time or like, do I do a bunch? And not all of them are worth it. Just as not every three plus hour American epic is worth it. This is one that really, really is. And it has so many stunning visuals. It's like, man, ran Kurosawa. I've only seen it twice. And that is enough to leave a huge impact on me. A runner-up, kind of hard to think of a runner-up from that year. This is, of course, the year of Back to the Future. But yeah, Ran is enough for that year to stand on for me. What about you? I went with Weird Science by John Hughes. Damn right. So again, like a complete contrast to styles of movies. Um, Even uh, one of our Twitter followers mentioned that you couldn't have really had more of a stark contrast. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And it's very true. You can't go with Kurosawa and Weird Science. Weird Science was a movie for me as a kid that I grew up watching over and over and over again. And of course, there are better movies made than Weird Science. But again, 
there is just something about like you know growing up with my mom she showed me this movie and which is kudos to my mom and it's just so much fun and a great performance by bill paxton half the shout out to to him in that oh paxton the man and runner-up would have to go to back to the future yeah and very fair runner-up i mean come on anytime you put it on all good what's your ranking i've always been partial to no one i mean I'm like alone on that island, but I love Back to the Future too. That's that's your favorite one? Yeah, because like you're saying with Weird Science, that was my favorite as a kid. I watched Back to the Future so many times. I wanted a hoverboard so fucking bad. Oh, I know it. I got I, one, two, three, mm-hmm. but two is like real because two that's is fair. so good. Two is really good. We have a friend whose favorite is three, but he's an asshole. Uh, I just, I mean, <laughs> I like three. Three is really good, but how is I know, three your kidding. favorite? <laughs> 1986, at first glance, I went to something else, and then I had to think a little bit, and I'm like, okay, yeah, Blue Velvet, David Lynch, I feel good about this. But there were a few runners up here, but Blue Velvet, actually, my kind of my main runner up is Hoosiers, and what's interesting is that you were getting polar opposite Dennis Hopper performances in those. And I remember watching, well, one thing people are going to have to kind of accept is that I watched a lot of these movies for the first time with my parents, and like, Gloves were kind of off. I was allowed to watch anything. So, you know, it was as crazy as Blue Velvet is and as crazy it is to hear that I watched that at like eight years old with my dad. But I did <laughs> like that's That was my life. And here I am today. Thanks, dad. But I remember us really sitting down and him saying, like, look what an actor can do in the same year in a movie. And it's once you see him in both, it's really startling to think that they came out in the same year. And he was nominated for Hoosiers, which is cool. But Blue Velvet, I mean, Frank Booth. Oh, man. And then just real quick, Stand By Me. I love Stand By Me, childhood favorite. That was 86. I love your 86 pick because it is very you. This is an interesting year because so my number one pick for 1986 was Down By Law by Jim Jarmusch, who uh, is top three favorite filmmakers I also love the movie Aliens mm-hmm. from 1986, with, directed by James Cameron. It, it was that like similar. That was the movie I grew up with. I've seen it yeah. so many times. And trying to think between the two, it's like, man, what do I go with here? Because I got to pick one. But I thought about it, and I was like, Aliens was my movie as a kid, if I'm looking at 1986. And then 1986 with me as an adult and as a filmmaker – I got to go with Down by Law because Down by Law taught me so much. That's a great way to put it. And it, it, it just it just taught me so much about how you can tell a story, characterization, behavior, like everything that those three guys do in that jail cell is got to be some of the most interesting stuff I've ever seen. And that came from an idea of how are we going to structurally set up these ideas? We want to communicate who these guys are, what they're about, and this is how we're going to do it. And it's brilliant. It's fucking brilliant. Absolutely. Aliens was big on Twitter. A lot of our followers called that one out for 1986 is our favorite. Fair enough. Moving on to 87. This is one, it's full metal jacket because this isn't, again, the best year really on paper, but that's not to take anything away from full metal jacket. I'm, you know, obviously still gets referred to Every mention of it is that how it's kind of two different movies, you know, split into two. And as I get older, my appreciation for Kubrick grows and grows and grows. And I am really fascinated by the artifice of his film language. And if you are watching Full Metal Jacket 
expecting Vietnam, you know, expecting Apocalypse Now. That is not what he was going for. He was going for something very intentional, very artificial. And it really just works. It's so, um, you know, you love me long time, Mm -hmm. that whole thing. There are people now, I, I, I would venture that almost anyone over the age of, I don't know, 18, 15 to 18 knows what that is. But very few people as we get older know what it's from. Just the Kubrick influence. It's what I'm saying. Like you tell someone that's from Full Metal Jacket, they're like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, that's one micro example of how his influence is still all over culture. It just is whether you know it or not. So um, not really one to even mention a, a runner up for that year for me, but Full Metal Jacket. Great. It was fun to see uh, Twitter was into the Princess Bride. So it was cool to see that mentioned. But what about you for 87? 87, going with the Coen brothers with Raising Arizona for one specific reason. Well, number one, it's a great fucking movie, and I love this movie with all mm-hmm. my heart. It's it's got it's got it's just got that certain Coen brothers magic to it that exists in all of their movies, whether it's a comedy or a drama, there's a certain Coen's magic. And I think this movie really brought that light part of it to to uh to the forefront for them. But also this was my first movie memory of all time. Oh, shit. And what I mean by that was that um, I remember seeing this movie later in life. I don't I can't remember when. I'm sure I, I was a little bit older. But when it gets to the part where Nicolas Cage is stealing the, the um, paper towels, wearing the pantyhose on his head, running through the supermarket, running through like the whole like neighborhood yeah, I instantly remember seeing that as like a like a baby or a child, like like before I could form like, you know, a, a memory of anything. I remember seeing those images. And so I when I think about it, I think that was my very first movie memory I could ever relay. I thought about that in picking this because I wanted to kind of talk about that. Uh, Runner-up, Full Metal Jacket, no question. 1988 is a fun year because we both have some spirited picks. I'm going with The Decalogue by Christoph Keslowski. This is an anthology. It's actually 10 films. They're each about an hour long, and each one is loosely based on one of the Ten Commandments. It is set during present times. It all takes place in one apartment complex, one Polish apartment complex, and he made the entire thing for a hundred grand. It's insane. It is such just a testament of the human spirit, this whole anthology. It's something you can blind buy on Criterion and not be disappointed at all. So yeah, that's kind of a deep cut, but Decalogue, definitely check it out if interested. We both went European with 88. Yeah. Decalogue is so good. Uh, I'm burning my way through it and loving every second of it. It's my introduction to Kislowski. And I can already feel like little filmmaker spidey tingly senses go with every single one of the things I'm watching from him. But I went with um, The Vanishing, which is a absolutely terrifying movie about the disappearance of um, this main character's girlfriend and the serial killer, kidnapper, if you will, and his kind of life and so we're kind of mirroring this one search versus this reality of this guy and it's so unsettling i'm not one for horror as maybe on the podcast we've alluded to but this is on another level of just 
it's almost terror that you need to experience to behold how they put that on cinema. Yeah, it's bravado horror filmmaking. There, I don't think there's like an ounce of blood. There's no special effects. It is all through writing and acting. And please watch the 1988 version. Do not – the same director remade it, I believe, in 93. That version is fucking terrible. Don't watch it. Like He remade his own movie. Just – sorry. I, I mean I've, I've recommended that movie to people and said the director's name and they've been like – I mean like, yeah, I guess. And then I found out they watched the remake and I'm like, no, you got to read. Yep, you got to read it. Okay, 1989. Controversial Oscar year, certainly – um, the movie that should have won Best Picture is my choice, and that's Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. It lost to Driving Miss Daisy. Crickets, crickets, crickets. Do the Right Thing, what can be said? It's just a monumental piece of filmmaking. It is absolutely bananas that it was his third film. Big hit on Twitter. Every, everyone chimed in for Do the Right Thing. I went with Say Anything by Cameron Crowe. Well, one, I love John Cusack. I mean, I think he is just the man in everything that he does. Um, but this movie also kind of showed me when I think of what it must have been like to grow up in the 80s. Yeah. This is always the first movie that comes to mind. I don't know why. There's so many movies that the 80s are such a specific time period that you could go back to any of these movies and be like, oh, yeah, that's an 80s movie. That's an 80s movie. But in my mind, when anyone mentions like an 80s movie in that general sense, my mind goes right to say anything. It's just got something and it's so much of a more dark movie than it actually seems like it is. Like Very true. the relationship between that father and daughter, mm-hmm. there is there's some like real meat and potatoes behind that that you could look into however you want. If you want to d- dig into it, it's good. It's good shit. Yeah, I love Say Anything. One of my favorite Cameron Crows, certainly. Moving on to 1990, this is our first unanimous year, the one where it is virtually pointless to mention any other runners-up, at least how we see it, and that is Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. I'm just calling it out for both of us because this is what it is. The movie still has an energy and a pacing that I don't think has ever really been matched. I think Scorsese has come close twice with his own work, but this is one that's been mirrored relentlessly and people trying to copy it relentlessly, and there's something about it that there's a magic to it that you can't really put your finger on that it makes it work. And is it is one of the most endlessly rewatchable movies ever made. I've never really shown it to someone who didn't like it. it might be a little too violent for you. That's fair. But it's great. It's good, fellas. It's hilarious. It moves. I've watched this every single year, uh, probably since 1990. Yeah, or 91. Every year of my life. At least once. I mean, I've seen it hundreds of times, but... What more can you say? <laughs> yeah, I can't. You just said it all. I there's there's no I mean, I guess I'll just ask, where does it rank in Scorsese for you? See, that's really tough. That's a good question. Because we got I mean, Taxi Driver is my number one of all time. And then Raging Bull is probably in my top twenty of all time. So I, I, I would have to make it it would have to be in the three. It it just has to be. It's not even it only it sometimes feels unfair to even say that it's like number three of the three. But, you know, if we're talking Scorsese, I have to say it's in the top three. For his canon, it's probably the most important movie of for Scorsese. I think it is the premier Martin Scorsese picture. I think The Irishman is actually 30 years from now going to be remembered, maybe not as fondly as Goodfellas, but a lot more fondly than it's remembered now. I've said that when they're all gone, that movie's going to be glorified in a way that it should have been when it was around. But yeah, I think Goodfellas is the most important movie to Scorsese, and I would say it ranks in his top three. 
I, I agree. I, I think that's his definitive. If you were to think about Scorsese and the one movie to come to your mind that defines him and, you know, because he puts so much of his own life into his movies, like the way he grew yeah. up, just all of that characterization in that real life. It just comes through in Goodfellas in a way that's just it's magic. But my sub question to this was going to be, what is the most rewatchable Scorsese movie? And that's hard because that's like asking about that about Kubrick. I, I have one right at the tip of my tongue. It's going to ruin one of my uh, reveals. So do you want me to save it or do you want me to tell you now? Okay, bring it back. We'll- I will remember, but he has made three insanely rewatchable movies. More than that, but he's made three that move at the speed of light to me. And they are all long. Yeah. So Goodfellas is number two. Mm. And then Wolf of Wall Street is number three. And then I'm going to mention a movie coming up that's number one, in my opinion. Moving on to 1991, got to go with Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Anyone who's listened to this podcast or notices on Twitter will always see me talk (laughs) about this because it is in my top five favorite movies of all time. I just think it's an absolute perfect movie. The action. You just don't see movies like this anymore. Like, nope. When you talk about the special effects that have gone into the making of this movie, I always talk about the helicopter sequence at the end when they're running away from him on the freeway. They're in the armored um, van. Sarah Connor is shooting at the helicopter. And the helicopter does this unnecessary move to dip, dive down and fly (laughs) underneath an overpass and dip back up. There's no reason to do that. He could have just flown, but they wanted to show the stunt. And if you saw that in any movie today that would have totally been done by CGI, I just got to point out that I guess this is my way of saying that I think action movies today do not hold up to the way that they were done before. This is old-fashioned movie making that's just not done today, and it's a goddamn shame. Terminator 2. Yeah, I knew that was going to be your number one for that year. Great choice. Mine is another personal pick, Boys in the Hood by John Singleton. I mentioned on this podcast before, but that really, it really changed how I viewed uh, life and how is a whole, there are whole different cultures outside of how you are being specifically raised. And it put an awareness on all of that for me that was really profound and remains profound. And 91 is probably one of the top five movie years of our lifetime, I would say. So that that's just a really strong year in general. A follow-up is tough. Uh, JFK, Thelma and Louise, but none will ever be more important to me than Boys in the Hood. God, I love that movie. That's awesome. I, I think runner-up would be Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, of course. I mean, God, never gets old. How? Yeah, how? It's it's such a good year. It's like, how is that not number one? And it's we face that a lot throughout these upcoming years. 1992. Now you ask me, what is the best movie made in 1992? I cannot concretely <laughs> tell you what my pick is because that's just not true. But God damn it, if Wayne's World is not my absolute favorite movie of 1992. Again, for the same reasons as Weird Science, there is probably not one movie on this whole entire list that I grew up and watched more times than this. My family was a metal family. So, you know, not that really Wayne's World is a metal movie, but these guys are exactly what metal guys are and were at that time. They were a bunch of nerds. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they had very strong views on what was excellent. And I love 
if anyone like really wants to get into it, the making of this movie because of the egos that were involved, not to ruin my own childhood and innocence, but finding that out was very fascinating. Yeah. If you are into director's commentaries, hers on that movie is really kind of eye-opening because she spends a lot of it. She has a good spirit about it, but she spends a lot just calling out how difficult it was to make this movie because of the egos involved. And it's like, whoa, holy shit. But yeah. I love that you picked that. I had a really tough time in 92. There were two years where I couldn't decide between a really, really personal choice or a Spike Lee movie. And this is one of them. I ultimately went with Malcolm X directed by Spike Lee, which I still think is the best biopic ever made. I'm a little biased because I have great affection for Malcolm X, the real person. This is also the year Reservoir Dogs, which is in terms of independent American independent filmmaking was forever changed after that movie came out. The ball had gotten rolling a little earlier with Do the Right Things, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Cassavetes, of course, but Reservoir Dogs really, really changed the game and it's hard to mention 1992 without mentioning that movie. I'll agree. And that was going to be my runner up for that. And I think, I mean, I, I mean, we could, it's debatable, of course, but I would venture to say that 1992 with Reservoir Dogs and then continuing with Pulp Fiction in 94 was probably the definitive independent movie change from the 80s into mm-hmm. what would become the rest of the 90s, really, and, and especially what independent cinema could do. Right. 1993. I went with the movie that forever, whenever I see it, just impacts me in a way that I, I, it was undeniable for me to not pick this movie for this year. In the Name of the Father, directed by Jim Sheridan, starring our boy Daniel Day-Lewis. This movie hits on so many levels. It's politically outrageous. It's family dynamic between father and son is one of the most complex and real that I can really think of when I think of like father son movies. This one always kind of shoots to the top. Beautiful filmmaking. I love that movie so much. Great choice for that year. I went with a prestige pick as well. Another Christoph Keslowski movie, and that is Three Colors Blue. This is because of Juliette Binoche, who has who delivers one of the best performances I've ever seen on film in this movie. This is a movie that really, really understands grief with a very, very close, careful eye. I was glad to see that True Romance was called out on Twitter a lot. That's great. That probably would have been my runner-up. 1994. All right. We have reached once again our unanimous decision, and I just don't think anyone could argue with it. We both picked Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino. We just talked about with Reservoir Dogs a little bit about how Quentin Tarantino really ushered in a brand new way of experiencing film because I was such a little nerd that uh, I didn't go to parties in high school. I would go to Blockbuster and rent four movies and do a double feature on Friday and Saturday night by myself. Pulp Fiction was on that list and I watched it. I couldn't watch what was next on my double feature. Nothing could ever beat it. I And I was in a daze for weeks because I just watched this movie that is just changed everything. Yeah, absolutely. It did. It was a total game changer and remains one of the most influential movies of my life. It taught me so much. I saw it right when it came out and I was very young and had a lot of questions. I never seen a movie told out of order. That's a really, really big eye-opening thing when you are young and impressionable 
for the eye and language of cinema, seeing a movie that's told out of order is like for the first time is I'll just I'll never forget it. I remember being so confused and being like, oh, you can. I thought you had to follow rules. There's no rules to this. Oh, huge game changer. And the way that Quentin talks about that is is so educational and it's so simple is he talks about how he reads so many novels and how novels do that. They bounce back and forth between time all the time. And he's like, I could do that with a movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds so simple, but the way it's executed is on another level. But still, just that idea like, oh, I see it this way. I could do it that way. Yeah, exactly. So now we have come to what was quite possibly one of the most difficult years to ever try to pick a favorite winner for. And I had no idea in researching that 1995 might quite possibly be the best year for movies ever. Mm -hmm. I went with Leaving Las Vegas by Mike Figgis. This was the movie, one of my top movies that I watched to learn how to make a movie. This was going into my first short film, There I Go. This was probably the number one movie that I watched to learn from. So I went with that, and that was my reasoning for it. But, I mean, 1995, I mean... Yeah, uh, mine was a three-way split between Leaving Las Vegas, Seven, and Heat. And I couldn't decide because I've always said Leaving Las Vegas. And I was like, I'm hitting with a lot of kind of prestige. And then when I knew you were going to take that, I went, okay, I'm splitting the vote and going with my most rewatchable Martin Scorsese movie, Casino. So that's my number one most rewatchable. I love this movie so much. It's three hours. It absolutely cooks. But my affection for Seven and Heat and Leaving Las Vegas and even Apollo 13, like, cannot be overstated. And then what about the fun stuff like Clueless? Yeah. It is a sneakily great year, a horribly represented year with the Oscars. But- it's it's a great movie year, and I felt really good letting Casino split all my votes. And I'm like, all right, cool. I feel really great about that. And it's a great pick, and just to kind of get back to that Scorsese, I, I, uh, I agree with you. Um, I think Casino is my most rewatchable Scorsese, and it, and it flies. It does not feel like three hours. God, I'd love it. 96, we're really starting to see the effects of this American indie cinema movement take over. My favorite of that year is Sling Blade, written and directed by Billy Bob Thornton. I've always loved that movie. And there are bigger movies that came out that year. But yeah, Sling Blade, that taught me a lot about homegrown country filmmaking because there were critics like Roger Ebert who really latched on to this type of genre, Sweet Hereafter, stuff like that, where there are these really specific slices of Americana that could be really easy to mock. And Billy Bob Thornton like grew up with these people. He knew that. And the care that he puts in this movie, I think, is palpable on every frame. I mean, Dwight Yoakam is fucking terrifying. John Ritter is great. God, I love this movie. Well, yeah, I was going to say the characterization of Sling Blade, I think, is what stands out the most is because you really even Billy Bob Thornton is so specific in these ways that it's one of those movies where it's almost uncomfortable to watch because it's so of where it's from. The movie is one of my favorite Favorite lines ever when the little kid asks Billy Bob about like his parents and he just pauses and he's like, they learned me to do what they told me to do. You know? like, what does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. All right, Dan. 
God, I love that. Watch, go watch um, the special features of that movie and watch that dude have to get literally change his face to get into character from director to actor. Like he's all, he's like, hey, everyone, everyone ready to roll? You know, Bill Bob here. And then he contorts his face and he's like, all right, and action. It's nuts. You, you, nuts. you, did, you did a better Billy Bob impression than the Sling Blade guy. <laughs> his name Carl. Carl Schiller. <laughs> Dead. I chose The Birdcage. Good choice. By Mike Nichols. And we've talked about this movie on our previous podcast of, of uh, adapting plays into film. I think this has got to be one of the best representations of that. This is a damn perfect comedy. Oh, yeah. It, it has everything you could ever ask for what a comedy should be. If you notice with this movie, and I think this is a big thing for a lot of comedies, particularly farces, is there's got to be an allowment for uh, an allowment of space to see the world of everything. So the bigness of these characters can take shape much like theater. And it works so well because you've got Robin Williams and you've got Nathan Lane. That's just gold. 1997, really strong movie year. This was another one where I went between personal pick and prestige pick. Went with personal, Goodwill Hunting, directed by Gus Van Sant. I never really heard movie characters talk like this before. Like, I saw this movie in the theater when it came out. And just the way they were busting each other's balls, I loved what they were putting down. And I, this is another movie that just sneakily moves. It's really, really well cut together. Yeah, a really important movie to me in... God, I'm looking at other movies that came out in 97 in a really strong year. And Oof. your pick would have been, was my number two. So take it away. L.A. Confidential by Curtis Hansen. I can't really think of what else Curtis Hansen has done. What else has Curtis Hansen done? Curtis Hansen did The River Wild, Wonder Boys, Lucky You. Yeah, he's one of the ones that's dipped around kind of everywhere. He did a little everything. But he had not really done, he did Hand That Rocks a Cradle um, the bedroom window. So kind of like movies like that, erotic thrillers. He hadn't really ventured into prestige. They like the high concept action with River Wild. But then LA Confidential was a huge turning point and he won the Oscar for it. He won the screenplay Oscar for it. And it was, you know, this book that could never be adapted and somehow they got a handle on it. But yeah, this was a huge announcement for him as a filmmaker. It's like, yeah, I'm not just here to do like kind of kitschy stuff. Same with Taylor Hackford when he did Ray. That's the guy that did like, you know, Officer and a Gentleman. And now he's trying to do a prestige picture and it works out. I always like to say these are note perfect movies. Mm -hmm. L.A. Confidential. There is not one single beat moment of that movie that is not executed perfectly by performance or direction or writing. It's that good. But you're talking about a year that's I mean, Jesus, there's so much good shit. Not to mention Titanic. <laughs> yeah, what a, I mean, seriously, you have that. And then underneath yeah. it, Boogie Nights, Jackie Brown. We could really go on and on for 97. 1998, one of my favorites of all time, The Thin Red Line, directed by Terrence Malick. Saw this one when it came out, and the weird pacing of it was new to me, but it never threw me off. And this was a huge insight into becoming more accepting of slower, purposeful filmmaking. And this is, of course... The same year, by way of comparison, of Saving Private Ryan, which came out a few months earlier. And I saw both with my dad, and we connected to both. But when we saw The Thin Red Line in December, we, like, 
talked about that one after. Because Saving Private Ryan is a good, intense action movie. The Thin Red Line really makes you think. That's one of my top 20 of all time. I love that movie. My runner-up complete favorite pick is He Got Game, a movie I've seen countless times. I Oh my god, I love He Got Game. And yours is a personal pick, so it seems. Oh, absolutely. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Terry Gilliam. There's just, I, I love Hunter S. Thompson. It's two of my all-time favorite performances of all time in both Johnny Depp and Benicio. It's a dream of mine to even be able to remotely even come close to doing anything like the type of work that they did here. It's unbelievably fun and dynamic. I truly think one of the best compliments you can get is that people just, people don't assume people quote unquote know that they were inebriated the whole time when they made that movie. And they weren't at all. No. I mean, you cannot yeah. be that tuned up for what, 45 days of shooting, you would die. So they yeah. weren't, they are sober. But the fact that people just believe that they were messed up, is like, yeah, that's because it's great acting. It's a weird movie, but it's great acting. It's so great acting. 98, real quick. That was uh, Big Lebowski. Got a lot of love on Twitter, obviously. Can't, obviously. You know, we all love the Big Lebowski. That's got to be my runner up. Oh, yeah. 1999, we did a whole podcast about it. You can go back and check that one out for a more detailed breakdown. But my favorite remains. It's Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick. I love that movie. We're talking about artifice. Oh, everything in it is so intentional. I love the performances. What a rare, odd odd film. A lot of runners up that we listed on that podcast. And I'm so excited to hear about your number one of this year. Yes. My number one was The Straight Story by David Lynch, which is a complete contradiction from what you will hear (laughs) in our podcast devoted to 1999. And I'm going to, I said it on Twitter, I'm going to read right from it. And I'm going to restate it now because when I rewatch this movie, Uh, Not a day has gone by that I have not thought profoundly about the straight story. It's simplicity juxtaposed with the amplitude of a life lived. What have you done with your time here and who are you as a person at the end of it? This movie has all of that. And so I really, really uh, loved this movie. It, it, It affected me deeply. And so I needed to revise my 1999. Oh, that's so great. Y2K, 2000, the <laughs> millennium. We're starting new. And I'm going with the movie that takes place in the 80s. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite movies, American Psycho. This is just one of my all-time favorite performances by any actor. Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman will go down in my probably top three favorite performances of all time. You know, reading the book after this, and seeing how good the movie is. The book is so good. The movie is so good. It's very rare to match the book in the movie in terms mm-hmm. of quality because the book is infinitely longer and way more in-depth, but the movie captures everything that you'd want and gives it the comedy that it really is. And if you watch this movie like that, you will have a blast. Yeah, the humor is what's really important. That's why... I think it's really smart that everyone advocated for a woman to direct that movie because it gives you an insight into this is absurd. This is supposed to be absurd. You are supposed to laugh. God, I love that movie. One of the all-time great film satires. It's just, oh, it's perfect. Mine's a little heavier. Mention it on our favorite movies of all time and that favorite movies of all time episode, and that is Traffic, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Another huge game changer for me. 
one of like the top 10 movies that made me definitively know that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I remember when I realized that he, that Soderbergh under pseudonyms had shot and edited the movie himself. It was just knowing that someone could do that and would do that without taking credit was really, really wild to me. And I mean, even getting down to the different film looks, you know, the different filters, how one storyline is yellow, one's blue, and one's really oversaturated. Oh God, traffic. I love it. And then Twitter was really alive for Almost Famous, of course, because it's Almost Famous. It's all happening. 2001. Oh boy. Oh, Black Betty. We're, you know what? I'm not even going to get into it that much. It's my favorite movie of all time. Blow, directed by Ted Demi, starring Johnny Depp. All-time favorite. That's it. The pacing of it, the editing, and the camera looks are meant to mirror the time it's reflecting. And that's the type of care that you and I both love in movies. It's not just a blank, you know, portrait of a time. That was a movie that too many people slept on. It deserves some sort of awards attention. It's kind of baffling that it didn't because that movie's great. It is my everything. My pick, you and I just enjoyed greatly together. We had a fun, Mm -hmm. you know, Zoom movie night, and that was watching Mulholland Drive together, directed by David Lynch. Completely different from the straight story. What a very spectacularly odd double feature that would be. The importance of Mulholland Drive for film, it's so huge. And I've heard people make arguments that there hasn't been as good of a movie made since that movie. And I've heard people make really strong arguments and like, you know, it may be the best movie ever made about movies or that landscape. So much to unpack there. I love it endlessly. I did want to have a very specific asterisk for this year. And that is, it's the first time we're going to mention this. Memento, if you look on IMDb, is a 2000 movie, but it was available for American audiences to watch outside of the festival circuit in 2001. I've complained about this before, but Memento is a very strong and close second to me because I love that movie. Yeah, and I'd have to go with Mulholland as my as my runner up. Mm-hmm. 2002, sneaky year that you actually saved for me. Yeah. I was very blanketly looking at the movies of the year and I go, God, this year sucked. And then you you just texted me and you rattled off like a bunch that I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe it. One of them just hit me in the face. The rules of attraction. The um, characters are of the time. It's a very 2002 movie. And huge credit to James Vanderbeek because I think that guy kills it in this movie. And I think he kills it in everything he does. I'm a huge Vanderbeek fan. So big ups to the rules of attraction. Good call out on 2002 because... It's not a good Oscar movie year if you're looking at it, not like at first glance. If you dig a little deeper, you're going to find some standout movies, one of which you're probably not going to see listed many places is my favorite of the year. And this is Antoine Fisher, directed by Denzel Washington. It would be worthwhile to do a whole Antoine Fisher episode because this is one of the top five movies that changed the course of how I lived my life for the better. Very, very important movie to me. Personally, I, yeah, we can go down a rabbit hole of what that movie means to me, and it's just very, very profound. But if you keep digging, I just want to give a little extra attention to 2002. You'll see stuff that got no Oscar attention that are still really well regarded, like 25th Hour, Solaris, Punch Drunk Love, Minority Report, that might have gotten a few nominations. And then there was one Oscar movie that I liked a lot, The Pianist. And then there were some, you know, bigger ones, Road to Perdition, Gangs of New York, Catch Me If You Can, Adaptation. 
um, irreversible is like a wicked pick for me because sorry. Yeah. But yeah, you just have to, you kind of have to dig. Some of these years you have to dig. You're going to introduce our next year, but this was a year that despite digging is a really tough one. And that just kind of happens sometimes. It's a tough year. It's a tough year. Not to say there wasn't good things about it, of course, but, and we went with them. Uh, I picked Lost in Translation by uh, Sofia Coppola. It's pure Sofia, the way that she brings magic into her movies. And I just loved it with all my heart. But tough year. If I had to pick a runner up, I'd go with Cold Mountain. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You said that on Twitter, which I think is a really, I think that's a spirited pick for number two. My number one is 21 Grams by Alejandro Gonzalez and Uritu. And that's, yeah, that is a my kind of movie because it's so intense and so painful and dark. And I really like the complex puzzle of that. It is a tough movie to figure out. Yeah, I Naomi Watts is a an all-timer performance in this to me. Top 10 best performances I've ever seen. I absolutely love her in this. So, not the strongest year, but there were strongest there were strong movies. There are always strong movies in a year. You just don't know how many of them you're going to find. That's all. Yep. Uh, Naomi Watts' performance in that movie is probably, I mean, I'm not going to commit to saying this, but when I'm thinking about it right now, it might be my favorite performance I've ever seen with someone dealing with loss in that way. Yeah. Because it's so honest. It's so real. It's like, yeah, this isn't, we're going to show you an entirely different aspect of this, that this actress is going to fucking go in for. I mean, she's gone in it. Oh God, what a movie. It's so good. I love it. 2004. Uh, I love both of our picks for this. And I'm looking at our Twitter page right now. And I even commented, I said, I love seeing these movies next to each other because it just makes my heart happy. Oh, yes. My pick for my favorite movie of 2004 was Closer. Mm-hmm. Again, by the great Mike Nichols, top 10 all-timer for me. Um, I've spoken about it before. I think Closer is uh, it's my favorite movie ever adapted from a play. This movie inspires me to be the best possible filmmaker I could ever hope to be. But my runner-up is your favorite movie. Before Sunset, directed by Richard Linklater. Yeah, that's yeah. 2004 was a tough year. 2003 and 2004, traditionally for my life, have been my tops of those years were the Clint Eastwood movies, Mystic River and Million Dollar Baby. And as I'm getting older, I still have affection for those movies. I'm a great I'm a great admirer of boxing. I mean, so Million Dollar Baby does mean a lot to me. But you were kind of talking like what meant a lot to us in 2004, Million Dollar Baby and Before Sunset. But what means a lot to us now and Before Sunset wins there? It does. Mm -hmm. It's 80 minutes of perfect filmmaking yeah filmmaking from camera compositions to the way it is written and performed to the flawless ending which it's one of the great endings in film it's interesting when these smaller movies that i saw in the theater at the time 21 grams and before sunset were kind of outshadowed by bigger oscar movies from a veteran filmmaker and now that those have kind of gone down a little bit and the quiet stuff is what i latch onto more as an adult so Time is the best indicator for all of this. Time is mm-hmm. the best indicator of art. It really is. And I remember actually Inuritu mentioned that I either in his, I think in his Birdman acceptance speech, that that's really the best way that any of us are ever going to know what is quote unquote the best or what we consider our favorites. So yeah, it's, it's just fun to go back and take a look at these. And one of the reasons I'm kind of going down that little digression is because my next one, which I just mentioned on a What Are You Watching episode, is Brokeback Mountain with Ang Lee, a movie that I would have given four out of four stars, 10 out of 10, A plus, whatever you want, in 2005. 
And then I rewatch it like a month ago and I'm like, well, if I gave it those grades in 2005, what the hell do I give it now? Because I think mm-hmm. it's so much better. So I just I love your pick so much because I know it's new. I think Brokeback Mountain is a masterpiece because mm-hmm. I rewatched it after you had been telling me because you're like, dude, I just rewatched this and I cannot get out of my head. And I was like, you know, I haven't rewatched that in a while. And I felt the exact same thing as you. But I wanted to send some love as my number one movie of this year to The Ballad of Jack and Rose by Rebecca Miller. This was one of my favorite movies that I rewatched in the last year. What it captures, it, it's so special and magical that it captured it on film. Mm-hmm. So I did want to point out that uh, as my favorite movie of the year for that for that reason. But Brokeback Mountain, I think, will be one of those movies that stands the test of time to goes down is like, holy shit, that's one of the best films ever made. Absolutely. 2006. Um, this is a toss up for me, almost a three way tie. It eventually came down to United 93 by Paul Greengrass, which is my favorite, which I really think holds up and Babel, which I was really excited to see that it, uh, we got a ton of engagement on Twitter for 2006. And a lot of people were fans of Babel. And that's one that has always held up for me. But United 93, I mean, looking back at it, like it's crazy that that came out uh, four and a half years after. Like, that's just really, really wild that they were able to pull that off um, and it hit so hard. And then you can't argue with your pick. There's just no way to argue it. It's like we're talking about rewatchable movies here. The Departed. Yeah. Scorsese. And the reason I picked this one was because this was um, a movie that was very special to me at the time it came out in 2006. And I saw it in theaters probably like six or seven times because and it's just so good. And it holds up except for the fact of the cell phones. And I tweeted about it is that this movie is so dated like because of the T9 word usage on their cell phones. Yeah. Like this movie, if you were to remake this now shot for shot, you couldn't do it because you can't do what they do on phones. <laughs> exactly. You'd have to come up with another angle. But that's like it's great because that was kind of like the last big good haul, good stance for those for those flip phones. And then now they're yeah. you look after that. Now the tech has just changed. But that's a good Scorsese thing. He's always embraced the tech. Whenever yep. something comes along, he incorporates it into his films and how he makes them. So 2007, um, maybe the best movie year of our lifetimes. We've said it a few times, but this is this is a tough one. There are there's like seven that are kind of inarguable and maybe we can touch on them. My favorite is There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a popular favorite, but, you know, that's OK because it's 2007. I felt like I had gotten into a fight the first time after I saw that movie when it ended and the ending of that, because you're talking about a, you're talking about a really good movie, but a very, a very deliberately paced one. It's a long movie. And that fucker ends with such a one-two punch. I'm finished. Cue the strings. Oh God, I can rewatch it anytime. Love There Will Be Blood. But please tell us yours and then we'll talk about 2007. Uh, so I went with Into the Wild by Sean Penn. It was my birthday and I go to my favorite indie theater in Buffalo, New York, And I sat down and I had the theater to myself, one of those rare magical moments where it's just you and the movie. And my life changed. I I went on the journey of this movie. And when the movie was done, I did not have conflict in my decision that I needed to make for myself about where I was going to go next. I just knew. I go, oh, I know. That's insane that a movie can do that. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. And so I'm grateful for it. But There Will Be Blood is absolutely my number two, my runner-up. 
Um, I think it's a better movie. <laughs> and real quick, the, the glory that was 2007. They don't make them like they used to, folks. No Country for Old Men, which fucking won Best Picture. Okay. Zodiac, The Assassination of Jesse James, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Michael Clayton, Eastern Promises, uh, Funny Games, Darjeeling Limited, Once, Hot Fuzz, The Lives of Others, Insane, Good Year. As we often find, good years are followed up by tougher years. It doesn't mean it's a bad year, but 2008, you have to dig a little harder to find something, you know, to find a bunch. And what I found most interesting about this is that we recently did an episode on The Wrestler, and on that, we both took time to call out that The Wrestler was our favorite movie of 2008. Mm -hmm. And then upon a little digging, I'm like, no, I have to change to Hunger from Steve McQueen. Tough film. Made Michael Fassbender, Michael Fassbender, um, about Bobby Sands' hunger strike, The Troubles. If you have an eye for Steve McQueen's filmmaking and you've never braved his first feature, whoa, go back to it because... It does not pull punches. This has to be one of the best sound designed and sound mixed movies ever made because it. I've never heard people receiving a beating in a movie that sounds more accurate than this. It is, oh my God, tough movie, but that movie will forever live in my psyche as a filmmaker. Hunger, Steve McQueen. And I love your pick. Oh my God. I picked In Bruges, directed by the great Martin McDonough. Martin McDonough is probably my favorite contemporary writer today. And this is uh, Colin Farrell. I did not really like Colin Farrell. I didn't think he was a good actor. And then he does this. And he's one of now my favorite actors to watch. Some of us had liked Colin Farrell a little earlier. Tigerland, Miami Vice, of course. <laughs> but he had had some personal troubles that I, you know, we don't really need to go into. And this seemed to be his announcement of I'm back. I'm of full mind, sound, and body, let's get after it, and the tone of that movie. Yeah, I don't know if a funnier movie has been made since. Ooh, 2009, this is fun, because now we're getting fucking weird. Okay, <laughs> I'm going hardcore, film geek, Into the Void, directed by Gaspar Noé, crazy drug trip movie, most of it takes place from a POV perspective. I don't know how they were able to get the shots that they did, um... Very, very difficult movie, not really rewatchable. It is a long two and a half hours, but when you're ready to sit down and let this thing come over you, then enter the void, baby. That's all. <laughs> yep. That's all that can be said. It's such a great yeah. choice. By far Jeez. and away, my number one runner up to my pick. For a reason, I picked A Single Man, directed by Tom Ford. So we just spoke about our shared experience with Nocturnal Animals and Tom Ford yeah. and how we felt that connection to this filmmaker. And I then, after seeing that, went back to watch his first movie. His first movie this dude has ever made. He's a fashion designer. It's nuts. <laughs> this movie is fucking perfect. Even the attention to detail for color, saturation, which he's changing in camera, very, very cool. Oh, 2010. This is all-timer for me, Inception. Christopher Nolan, uh, one of my favorite movie-going experiences. I will never forget being as absorbed into a movie and its world and what it did and not questioning a single thing and going on for that ride. 2010, but what a year. What a year. Yeah. If I had to pick, I'd probably, I think, what did, what did I pick? Blue Valentine is my runner-up, yeah. Which is really hard for me to not call my number one because that movie is just really important to me. Dogtooth is very important to me. Black Swan, the social network, which Twitter really loves. 
yeah. somewhere by Sofia Coppola has to be my number one. And we dedicated an entire episode to it. So don't need to elaborate. But yeah, that's how good that movie is in a really strong year. It creeps in and wins. Strong year. Speaking of strong years. Oh, boy. We mo- we're moving on to... I've said it about 1995. We talked about it in 1997. But for my money, I think this might be my favorite movie year of all time. It's tough. It's right up there. Oh, it's so good. Uh, I went with Midnight in Paris by Woody Allen. And I am, I'll say it, I'm not the biggest Woody Allen fan. I'm very, very hit or miss with him. And more often than not, I'm a miss. But this, I cannot think of a movie that makes me feel alive in the way that Owen Wilson's character feels alive when he gets transported to his world that he goes to and meeting all of these historical figures. It's whimsical. My pick is not, but it is no. maybe the most important film like of my lifetime, or at least in the top three. That's Shame, directed by Steve McQueen. Talked about it plenty on this podcast. I can feel people almost rolling their eyes, but Yeah, I have not seen a better movie since Shame came out, and I think that's kind of a cool way to phrase that. But this is a very, very strong year in Sandy, which is one that I think IMDb says was 2010, but was available in 2011. But Moneyball, Warrior, Tree of Life, Drive, Melancholia, Contagion, it goes on and on. Not the best, again, not really the best Oscar year, even though your pick won best screenplay, which is cool. But yeah, great, great year. 2012, baby. Oh, what else can I say? I just mentioned it in our previous episode. Magic fucking Mike by Steven Soderbergh. I was trying to convince two friends yesterday that this needs to be the next movie that they watch. And they were rolling their eyes. Everyone does. Gotta have faith. Yep. I'm like, just watch it and then get back to me. I challenge you to tell me that you did not at the very least enjoy yourself. Pre-Magic Mike, what does 2012 look like for you? So, so, and this was actually, uh, this came up in our second episode we ever did, where we talked about yeah. our uh, top 10 of the 2010s. Ah, so yes, that's yes, how yes. good I like Magic Mike, was that this technically bumped this movie out. Uh, my runner-up, which is a movie that's my favorite Wes Anderson movie, is Moonrise Kingdom. That was a big one on Twitter, too. I should have called that, yeah. And so that's how good Magic Mike is, is because I love Moonrise Kingdom with all of my heart. But I love Magic Mike that much more. Sandbar party. When I have kids, I'll just make them watch Mad Money all day. It's like <laughs> My 2012 was also in my top 10 of the decade, and that was Rust and Bone by Jacques Odiard. Talking about pain again, I mean, that one goes right for it. That was another rewatch recently, and I went, yep, holds up. The last 15 minutes just absolutely gut me every time I watch it. I, oh, man, I love that movie. Um, let's give a much needed shout out to the master from that year. Phil Seymour Hoffman, yeah. we love you. Uh, the master, we love you. Really, really quick. I got to point out yes. that, um, so, um, so my mom has been following all of this, but not through Twitter cause she doesn't have a Twitter, but I've been ta- talking to her about all the movies Yeah, and we finally get to rust and bone and she just goes, Alex, Jesus Christ. He loves those movies that make you feel like shit. <laughs> it's a woman after my heart right there. <laughs> She understands how it works. <laughs> little rust and bone, little muck and shit. Yeah, some of my, I mean, you got some rust and bone, shame, enter the void, hunger. Good Christ, you put these up next to each other, you're in for, just don't watch them all at once, folks. Don't be like me. Just space them <laughs> apart. Be a normal person. Watch some of Nick's, too. But yeah, I like the, uh, 
hey, I just love that your mom has seen Rust and Bone because not a lot yeah. of people have seen that movie, period. And that's the thing is I think that one just caught her. I think that one just yeah. was like one of those because she doesn't really watch movies like that. So I was like, how sure. did you see Rust and Bone? She goes, I don't know. I just ended up watching it. And <laughs> it was on Netflix for a while. Like it it can make the rounds on the streaming services. So oh, love it. 2013. Yeah, I love both of our picks so much for this. I got to go with my boy C in France, The Place Beyond the Pines. We did a whole entire podcast episode on this. Um, so I'm not going to say too much other than that's my boy. There you go. And this was also in my top 10 of the decade. So Upstream Color, directed by Shane Carruth. Recently rewatched this one. I love this movie. I love picking it apart. It's a great little puzzle. Was really happy that Twitter was kind of alive for Inside Llewellyn Davis and Mud with Matthew McConaughey for yes. 2013. We got a lot of love and Wolf of Wall Street. Those three movies repped yep. really hard on Twitter because by now, in t- by 2013, the engagement and thank you all, everyone so much was like really flying and we were having a yeah. lot of fun replying to people. So, yeah, that was that was cool to see those two movies Inside the Will and Davis and Mud specifically are still very well regarded in pockets of film Twitter. It's great. Absolutely. And and one thing I do want to bring up was that I'm just looking at it now. This might be one of my favorite movies of honorable mentions. Oh, sure. Nebraska, Out of the Furnace, Before Midnight, and Drinking Buddies. Me personally, those are like, those are very Nick Dostal movies. Those all speak to me in completely different ways. And I love them. And Highly recommend all of those. If we're and it's kind of cool to personalize it like that because Spring Breakers, Enemy, Blue Ruin, and Under the Skin are very oh. much Alex Withrow movies. Like all yeah. of those, I'm like pulling different pockets from an enemy. Holy Christ, that's right oh. up there with my favorite Denny Villeneuve movie. I mean, that movie, go give Enemy a try. Double Jake. You can't go wrong with Double Jake. 2014 was another one where and we uh, did not have the same pick for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 2014, we both could not deny that Boyhood was our favorite movie of that year. I'm just going to quote why on my Twitter. I, I was going to say, could you please just say what you said on Twitter? Because you summed it up perfectly in your tweet of why this is the best of 2014. Perfect. I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah. I had to pick Boyhood here simply because of the ambition. The astonishment that it worked. No filmmaker has ever done anything like this. Filming a movie for over a full decade, pulling it off, and to create a piece of art that moves thoroughly and spans real emotions and people. It's life. Well said. And that's exactly why it's my number one as well. And a few things. I want to stay on Boyhood before we move to 2014. Uh, Linklater has already started his 20-year project. He's doing one that's going to last 20 years. And this is, I don't want to digress here a little bit, but, you know, the the star of that 20-year project recently got canceled. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the culture we're living in now that people can get canceled in year one of a 20-year project. Will, does that mean that man will still be around for the rest of it? And will his cancelization still have an impact 20 years from now when I'm 55 years old that this person was canceled 20 years ago. Will filmmakers care? It's kind of interesting to look at. Just the broader picture, some things I noticed about 2014. This was our most, the most engagement we got on Twitter of any year, which I thought was cool because people love boyhood. People love, including us, Whiplash 
Of course. Of course. Nightcrawler, Birdman, Inherent Vice, Interstellar, great year. 2015, who this is tough. Ooh. This is not a good movie year for me. We've even talked about it on the podcast. Um, my number one pick, I'm, I'm sorry to anyone who's listening. I'm not trolling. I'm being absolutely serious. It is Love by Gaspar Noé. I don't really know what else to say other than no bullshit. It really is one of the best movies about a contemporary relationship that I've ever seen. This is not a relationship that goes well, but if you want a movie about a relationship in chaos and what that does to you years later, I think this is a really good representation of that. This movie is not for everyone. This movie's probably for about like 20 people in the world, and I'm one of them. Gaspar Noé's one of them, so yeah, I proudly stand on that mountain alone, but I do love love. And then yours is a great personal pick for us. Well, I'm just going to say before I get into that, I'm right by you with love because awesome. I love love. I there love all of No Way. And that might be, and this is also saying everything, is as much as I talk about colors and how much I love colors in movies, oh. and No Way does too, but I think love is probably my favorite looking of his movies, which says mm -hmm. a lot. Say whatever you want about that movie. A lot of people can make some very, very easy, strong, compelling arguments against it. I understand that movie looks fucking breathtaking, like the creaminess of the colors, the rich textures. Oh, man, I love it. I kind of found some, with some digging, some movies that I really enjoyed. And at the top of that list is a movie that's very personal to me, is Mississippi Grind. Oh, yeah. We've seen this movie. It's a road movie. It's a buddy movie. It's a gambling movie. There's nothing new under the sun, but it is so fresh. The movie just keeps doing these things throughout it that were just blowing me away. There's a lot more substance here than I thought there was going to be. And the movie's doing things that are genuinely surprising me. And I really loved it. One of our favorite lines that we say from it uh, is, we can't lose. We can't lose. You watch the movie and, uh, and you'll see where, where, why that line is important to us as friends and filmmakers. But it kind of became our motto. It did. And I and I do want to point out that like Clouds of Sils Maria, which is a movie I absolutely adore. James White. Oh, great one. Our boy Abbott and our favorite Abbott performance thus far came out that year. Son of Saul. Put yourself through that, but you'll you'll be happy you did. Yeah, there's definitely some I mean, the Revenant, Wild Tales, Victoria, Sicario, there's definitely stuff in there. Tangerine. So yeah, it's just as a collective whole. You know, maybe not my favorite year, but definitely there's always some gold to be found in every year. 2016, huge change for me because it was La La Land up until I rewatched Arrival for our Amy Adams episode. And I talked about it on the Amy Adams episode, but I had a really profound impact on me. And it took, um, well, it took losing my mom to realize what that movie, I believe, is really trying to say. And yeah, I really like that movie. And I just rewatched Manchester by the Sea. Man, that movie does not fuck around. Like that no. thing hits from the beginning. And we're talking about these heavy movies, but that has a lot of humor in it too. Like Lucas Hedges is hysterical in that. I forgot how funny he was, but cool to see Manchester highlighted on Twitter as well. We had a lot of followers who dug that, but you are going to pick it up, make a little lighter for us. And it's great because it's one of my favorite you and me movies. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Everybody wants some. Oh, yeah. I, I, I feel like I've said it too many times, but I just will always say the same expression is that it put a smile on my face 
from the second it started, and that smile never left. And I think that's an impressive feat for any movie to do for what it's doing. The, the There's nothing special. It's just a hangout movie. But there's no other movie I'd rather hang out with. There's no other guy I'd rather hang out with, Big Hoss. There you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was a big year for us. Yeah. Because we saw a lot of these movies in theaters. We saw The Neon Demon at its premiere. I mean, there there were just this was a big year for us when we were living in Los Angeles together. And um, I love Hell or High Water. I always said that that's a note perfect movie that came out that year. Manchester by the Sea, Night of Cups, Christine, Midnight Special or some good shit. 2017. Oh, boy. Um, Yeah, I'm definitely in mom territory here because this movie kind of made me. I don't know, except what I had gone through in that past year a little bit. That's Phantom Thread by Paul Thomas Anderson. I rewatched this one uh, about two months ago and texted you after and said, I think I just have to come to the conclusion that this is my favorite PTA film. I've long since said that it's There Will Be Blood, but Phantom Thread has an emotional component to me that uh, honestly few movies do, an extremely personal emotional component, but I mean, when you're even talking about your favorite PTA, it's just nuts because you're like, oh, yeah, that dude made Boogie Nights, like one of the most insanely rewatchable fun movies. And then we have Phantom Thread. that's this glorious love poem. Yeah, the by far the highlight of that year. A runner up for me. It's kind of hard to pick one because Phantom Thread was so, so impactful. But some ones that were highlighted on Twitter were Blade Runner 2049, Call Me By Your Name, Shape of Water, stuff like that. And then yours is a great pick as well. The Florida Project. Yes. It's long known that uh, Nick does not really like movies with kids. <laughs> and um, this movie actually speaks to exactly why I don't like kids. <laughs> and it, it, it kind of like hit that hard because I was watching this movie and I'm like seething in frustration and anger at just these characters. But then I realized it kind of dawned on me at a certain point like, holy shit, this is life. Like, this is a reality. This is, I can't be mad at little things that I just don't like because I need to find compassion. And so in a weird way, like this movie showed me that. (laughs) And I'll tell you, man, the ending, when we get to the iPhone ending, Mm -hmm. I fucking cried in the theater and I'll never forget that moment. And that's why it really meant a lot to me. And it was, I said it when I saw it, I was like, this is my favorite movie of this year. Uh, Runner up is a ghost story. Similar type of reasoning between the experience I had in the theater with that movie. So both so 2017 for you as well was a very, very personal in the theater experience. Mm-hmm. What's crazy about that is Phantom Thread comes out in December and then in April, we're already hit with what becomes our both of our favorite movie of 2018. And that's You Were Never Really Here by Lynn Oof. Ramsey starring Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, this is just a really strong, odd movie. And then a runner-up for me, I'm going to reserve it because that is what I'm going to be recommending at the end of the episode for what are you watching. But you were never really here. Very strong, engaging, insane way to spend 90 minutes. You had already seen it. Yes. And then you came out to Los Angeles. Right. And you're like, we have to go see this movie together. Yeah. And we watched it and I was floored. Lynn Ramsey, God, she knows what she's fucking doing. It, it's just, it's a movie that fires on all cylinders. It's not easy. It's not for everyone. But my runner up to it was a movie that's very uh, emotional for me as A Star is Born. I really 
connected to this movie. I think I connected to Bradley Cooper, which was, again, similar to what we're talking about with Derek C. in France and Tom Ford. I'm like, oh, what's important to you is what's important to me. Still sticks with me. I rewatched it to confirm You Were Never Really Here was going to be my favorite movie of the year, and it was. But I had just the same love for A Star is Born as I did the first time I saw it. 2019, we're getting into such new territory here that we've covered this on the podcast already, but Waves, directed by Trey Edward Schultz, is one of the most important movies of my lifetime. I know I've said that a lot because we're talking about our favorite movies of each year, but ooh, I watch that one every few months since it's come out, and I love it with all my heart. My main runner-up is the one you're going to mention, but beyond that, Climax by Gaspar Noé, Ad Astra, The Irishman, but of course... The true runner-up is your number one. And um, I've said this to you before in a text message, and I'm going to announce it publicly here for anyone who really cares that much to know. But it is official that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has now moved up to my second favorite movie of all time. That's wild. I've thought about this a lot, and I know it's it's very hard to say that a movie just came out two years ago would do that. But And every time I've seen it, I fall in love for the first time over and over again. And so it has officially taken the ranks as number two. That's awesome. Such a huge milestone. We love moments like that. Ah, that's so cool. That one's going to live forever and ever. 2020, we've talked about this very recently. It's another one where we share a share number one. It is Small Acts by Steve McQueen with a little asterisk to say Lover's Rock is our favorite of those five films. And yeah, we just went into this, but this wasn't the best year for movies. Obviously, COVID COVID prevented a lot of movies from being released. So what we got is what we got. And Small Axe was a definite highlight in a year of, you really had to search to find good stuff here, but there's no taking away from Lover's Rock. This is like, it's just such a moving poem I can put on damn near any time. All I can say is that it's must-see. You have to, it's important. And Lover's Rock is just one of the most enjoyable experiences you'll ever have. All right. So that was a lot of fun running down our favorite movies each year, 1985 to 2020. You can still feel free to tell us which ones you like. If we missed yours or you didn't engage with us in the beginning, find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. But real quick, before we end, I wanted to throw out a few kind of awards or highlights that I thought would be fun. We add five of the same years, 1990, Goodfellas, 1994, Pulp Fiction, 2014, Boyhood, 2018, You Were Never Really Here, 2020, Small Axe slash Lover's Rock. And then I looked at all of the directors that we chose to see, you know, how many we picked from each director. You had four that had two, Scorsese, Mike Nichols, Tarantino, Link Ladder. I had a bunch that had two, David Lynch. Spike Lee, Scorsese, Link Ladder, PTA, Gaspar Noé. But then with Small Axe slash Lover's Rock, that boosted me to three for Steve McQueen. Hunger, Shame, and Lover's Rock, which is kind of wild, but... Wow. Yeah, so three Steve McQueen films. Um, final thoughts before we move on to what are you watching? Just basically, um, you know, if, if you enjoyed this podcast and you uh, want to engage with us, that Twitter line of stuff and content is there and we will respond to it if you have anything you want to add or contribute. Oh, yeah. So don't feel like it's too late. We just wanted to celebrate that this was such a big thing um, and fun thing to do on Twitter and we want to do more things like this. So 
join us on that platform and we will engage with you. So don't feel like you can't talk about what your favorite movie of 1996 was because we want to hear it. Absolutely. You want to go first? What are you watching? It's going to be a weird pick uh, considering that I want to pick a movie from the whole entire gamut of the decades we just talked about. And I want to recommend a movie from 2011, Beginners by Mike Mills. Ooh, nice. Um, Christopher Plummer, uh, RIP, who just recently passed. Mm -hmm. uh, His Academy Award winning performance. It's just a really, really solid indie movie. It was special when I rewatched it. It was special the first time I saw it. And it's the one that I want to recommend. I like that. I saw that twice. I haven't seen it in a while, but I... What I held on to from that, of course, it's been brought up in our minds because of Christopher Plummer's recent passing, but the way that he captured when they move in together, how it's like not working out and that's just through silences and really editing cuts, that's that's a really cool tempo of that movie. Very unique. Yeah. Same thing. He has that tempo. That's a great way to kind of look at him. That's a very, he's very, very specific and consistent with that. That's the way he tells his stories. And then I kind of tease this a little bit, but this was my 2018 runner-up. Recently rewatched this, had an absolute blast, saw it for the first time with you, had an absolute blast, and that is Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I mean, nice. we, we went, like, I guess it was a Saturday, but there were not a lot of people there. It was in the dome, and we're, like, in the no. Arclight Dome. We're like, wow, there's really not a lot of people here. And it was, I didn't know what to expect, but this is... A very, very fucking weird, complex movie that I feel like it's being – the more I rewatch it, I'm like, I think you're just being complex on purpose for the sake of kind of messing with us and just confusing us and throwing us all around. But uh, from the first time I saw it to this most recent time I watched it, there is a twist that is revealed, you know, in the last kind of 15 minutes that – I certainly didn't see coming, and I remember sh gasping aloud when we saw it together, and I was like, holy shit, and it still kind of hits like that. You have to be into what the movie is cooking up because this is a very, uh, I don't know, specific sort of recipe. So Dakota Johnson kind of changed my opinion about her. I think she's really game in this. Tilda Swinton is doing what only she can do. She makes it worth it on her own, but yeah, what a weird, twisty, crazy movie that I love. On Amazon Prime. Yeah, I agree. That's a great pick. Damn right. Damn right. So this was a lot of fun. It was really cool to kind of cross over Twitter and our podcast, take something from Twitter, bring it into the pod. So thanks, as always, everyone for listening and happy watching. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to break down the 2020-2021 Oscar nominations, whatever in the hell those may be. We try to keep things positive on the podcast, so this will certainly be a challenge. Stay tuned. I mean, because it's like, because you're getting, you're, there's like.
And then All right, let's talk like, about this after the podcast because I'm not going right. to include any of you're this right. in the podcast. No, of course <laughs> no. not. This is, we were. This is off the record. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, it's now recorded. <laughs>